We're going to continue today in a sermon series we kicked off last week, an Advent-themed series. Uh, I want to start with a story I heard from an old colleague of mine in campus ministry years ago. There was a campus minister by the name of Mac who used to take groups of college students in the summertime on overseas mission trips to various parts of the world in, in hopes of sharing the love of Jesus with people across cultures. And one particular year, he took a group of North American students to El Salvador to some villages that were uh, particularly poor and marginalized and hurting. And the students on this team were just very eager, very excited and energetic to, to travel far and to share the love of Christ with, with people who needed it. And so they were in some rural villages under the leadership of a local pastor and this pastor gave them a task. Uh, they were going to have a movie night that the church was going to put on. So he said, go on out, invite everybody you can find to come on out to this movie night. We're going to uh, show film together. And the students were excited about this. This was a kind of outreach they liked, really low-key and relational, and could maybe show that God was cool and accessible. And so they went out and invited everybody they could find to, to watch this movie. And sure enough, the night came to show it, and the place was packed. It was wall-to-wall, standing room only. Everyone had, had turned out, seemingly the whole village, to see this movie. Students are very excited, and the pastor kind of flicks it on, and it turns out to be a movie called El Infierno Ardiente, or The Burning Hell. And it was all about hell, really. I mean, just images, powerful images of flames of fire and people screaming out in agony as they're being tormented in hell. And the North American students were just horrified, like, oh, this is terrible, how can we be showing this? Some of them ran out of the room crying, like, yelling at Mac, like, how could you, do? we came all this way to share the love of Jesus with people, and we're showing this, how could this be? And he tries to talk them down, like, well, you know, let's defer to the local leadership here, they know what they're doing, but the, the students just can't believe it. They're like, no, this can't be a good thing. And they're very skeptical, until the movie ends, and there's not a dry eye in the room. And some of the folks shout out, Otra vez, show it again. And, and it's their favorite movie, it turns out. And an invitation goes forward. Who wants to get to know this God in, in, in your life? And people come forward in droves. They're thrilled. The students are like, what's going on? Well, it turns out this, these were villages that were caught in the crosshairs of a terrible civil war in El Salvador, in which there was a lot of horrible state-sponsored violence, actual massacres that were carried out at the hands of the powers that be. And, and people in this village were victimized horribly, and, and there was a trail of widows, orphans left behind. People had taken fathers and husbands away from them, daughters, wives, brothers, and sisters that vanished, disappeared, were, were kidnapped, were were brutally killed or assaulted, and it seemed like everybody got away with it. Didn't matter, no accountability, because the government was behind the whole thing, and these people felt completely powerless in the face of unspeakable loss and, and tragedy and oppression. And so when they saw the images in this film, they imagined some of their captors, some of the people who'd, who'd taken away their loved ones, some of the people who'd set fire to their homes, and who seemingly got away with it. And they wondered, oh, could it be that God saw? God saw what happened to us. 
and God cares. And maybe these people won't actually get away with it. Maybe there's some accountability. Maybe they'll be brought to justice. Could it be that God is actually concerned for what we've been through and is going to do something about it? And it turns out nothing actually could have communicated the love of Jesus more than what they'd seen. For the North American students, this was mind-boggling, but it made their view of Jesus and of his love a little more complete, a little more well-rounded. It wasn't just the case that, oh, Jesus wants to be your buddy, Jesus is your homeboy, but actually to communicate Jesus' love in that situation meant communicating that there is an all-powerful judge who is going to bring about justice and set things right. Their view of Jesus became a little more complete that night. And it's important that we have a complete and a well-rounded view of who Jesus is and what his love is about. It's part of why we're doing this series now called What's in a Name? We're looking at four different names of Jesus given in Scripture. Our, our key verse for this series, Len introduced it last week and, and Tom read it to us earlier, is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9. Isaiah was writing 700 years before Christ and seeing ahead, looking ahead, kind of filling out this picture of who he is, who he would be. And these four names are all kind of part of the picture. And it's up on the screen. It says, For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All four of these names are critical to understanding the fullness of who Jesus is, what he's about. Last week, Len kicked us off looking at Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the one who walks with us side by side, gets involved in our lives, listens to us, hears us, and and guides us, directs us, offering good counsel, wonderful counsel, really. Today, we'll be looking at Jesus, the mighty God. I have to admit, of the four names here in this passage, The other three seem a whole lot more comfortable to me. I mean, the wonderful counselor walking side by side with us, the everlasting father, kind of a relational, familial term, the prince of peace. Oh, doesn't that sound nice? But Jesus is also mighty God. To leave that out of the picture gives us a a woefully incomplete vision of who he is. Just as if that's the only thing we see about him, that's also a terribly incomplete picture of who he is. Some of you may have been raised or given a picture of a God who's just almighty God, who's just all-powerful, maybe inapproachable, inaccessible, scary, that sort of thing. That is a horribly incomplete picture of who Jesus is. These other three names are critically important. But to leave this one out is also a terribly incomplete vision of Jesus. He's mighty God. This one, it can be easy to forget because Jesus does make himself so approachable, so accessible, so down to earth. In this Christmas season, we celebrate the baby Jesus. There's images of him all over the place, the baby, and he really was every bit as vulnerable and small a baby as any you've ever held. He came as a baby, and he makes himself so relatable, so approachable, and he invites us to come to us as we are, and we can talk to him, and we can relate to him. He is so down to earth and so accessible, we can forget sometimes. He is also mighty God, this one who draws so close to us. His disciples during his time on earth 
got a glimpse of this every now and then. On the one hand, they were Jesus' friends. He called them friends. They were his boys. They were buddies. They did a lot of stuff together. They did road trips together. They took walks. They ate a lot of meals. He came over some of their houses and spent the night there. He was so approachable. They could talk to him, listen to him, ask him questions. They were, they were friends. But every now and then, the disciples got a, the curtain rolled back a little bit. They got a picture of who it was they were walking with this whole time. We're going to look at one such example from the Gospel of Mark this morning. This is in Mark chapter 4. It's on page 710 in the Bibles that are provided for you, most of them anyway. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Up until now, the disciples, they've been getting to know Jesus in a very relational, up-close up way. They'd seen him do some cool things. They were drawn to him. They knew there was something special about him. But here, he kind of takes it to another level. Starting in verse 35, he and his disciples are by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is what happened. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I'm going to walk through this story a little bit, focus on a couple of key words and phrases that are in here. And this is one of those cases where I think it's helpful to get into the original Greek that the gospel writer Mark wrote in. So first, in verse 37, we're told that there was a furious squall that came up. Starts out as an ordinary boat ride they'd done many times before, but now this storm comes about. And the word furious in the Greek, the, the root of it is the word mega. Mega. That you could say this is a mega storm that comes up. There were storms that were common on the Sea of Galilee, and some of Jesus' disciples were actually fishermen who were well acquainted with this stuff. They knew their way around wind and waves and boats. They were as seasoned and professional as anybody, but they were freaked out here because this was the big one. This was not any ordinary storm. This was a mega storm. And even these seasoned, experienced people of the sea, they, they thought they were going to drown in light of this. They thought, this one's too much, we're powerless to stop it, and, and their lives are over at this point, they think. It's a mega storm. So in their panic, they reach out to Jesus, who, by contrast, is asleep. Seemingly not concerned too much about what's going on. They wake him up in a panic, teacher, don't you care? We're going to drown. So Jesus gets up, we're told. He speaks to the wind and the waves says, quiet, be still. And we're told there was, it was completely calm. Verse 39, completely calm. And again, the 
The original Greek word here translated completely is that adjective, it's mega. So we go from a mega storm to a mega calm. Every bit as furious and violent and deadly as these waves were, it's that calm the next moment. Instantaneously, from a mega storm to a mega calm. That's crazy. And that doesn't happen. You know, that's actually not how water works. Even if you have a little drink in your hand, you, you swirl it around for a little while and you stop moving your hand, the water's still going to splash for a little bit. And think of that on the larger scale, the sea. My wife Liz and I had a chance to live for a short while by the coast in Gloucester, Mass. during the winter, and we saw some nor'easters come through, big storms. And when that happened, the sea got very rough. The waves were big, they would pound, it was loud, violent. And then the storm would go away. It would end, go out to sea, and you'd have no wind, a clear blue sky. But the water would keep moving for days and take a long time to actually settle down to a place of calm. Like, that's how water works, you know. These are, you know, immovable laws of nature. But that's not what happens here. We have a mega storm. Jesus speaks mega calm, just like that. That's astounding. That is not how water works. And so the disciples are, are in awe here. You'd think this would be of great comfort. Okay, the storm's over. They think this thing's going to kill them. It's lethal. It's a deadly mega storm. Their lives are in danger. They freak out. Then they get out of it, and it's calm. You'd think that would be greatly comforting. Well, we're told instead in verse 41, they're terrified. Terrified. And behind that word terrified is actually multiple Greek words, one of which is mega. So you could say, in light of this, they are mega scared. They come up against a mega storm. Jesus brings it to a mega calm, and in response, they are mega scared. As wonderful it is that they're not going to drown in this situation, they suddenly look in the boat like, who is this? Who's in the boat with us? That storm had the power to crush us. Jesus, the power to crush the storm. How powerful is he? They were in awe. They were mega scared. They realized, oh my gosh, this is actually more than we thought he was that's in the boat with us right now. Who is this who can upend and suspend the laws of nature? Well, only the one who created them in the first place has authority to do that. This is a God-only thing to do that Jesus has just done. A God-only thing to do. As first century Jewish people, they may have associated this with God. It's all over the book of Psalms, references to God's authority and power over wind and waves. We'll have a few examples up on the screen. Psalm 65, for one, the Lord who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Psalm 89, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 104, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Psalm 107, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. It's essentially what's just happened here. They realize this is, this is a God thing to do that Jesus has just done. He just spoke to the wind. He spoke to the waves. And they did what he said. Who is this? 
How powerful is this one who we've been walking with the whole time? Oh my gosh, he, who is this? We've been up close and personal with him, but wow, he's got power unlike anything else, power to crush even the things that have the power to crush us. This is a God moment here. They, they get a glimpse that Jesus is actually the mighty God. They need to know that, this one who they're so up close and personal with. We need to know that, too. Jesus does make himself so approachable, so accessible. We can come to him. We can talk to him. We can worship him in such a casual way. I mean, we just kind of come in here casually. We got our food and drink, and we worship him. He allows that. He likes it. He delights in us coming to him. But this is actually a mighty God who we are coming before. It's helpful to remember that. I got a reminder of this one time years ago. This was early in my career as a campus minister, and I was going to go speak at a college group one night to give a, a talk about Jesus. I don't remember what it was about, but it was about him. And uh, I was really nervous, amped up, anxious leading up to it. I was having a hard time prepare. I was stressed, crunched for time. And then I had to go and make copies of the scripture passage that we were going to look at that night. So I go to a copy place, and the copier's just not working. Like, the pages are coming out wrong. It, it, it's not going right, so I'm getting more frustrated. And then the, the employee at the coffee place just gets a little snarky with me. Like, well, maybe if you knew how to feed the paper in properly, that kind of thing. And, and I, I just lost it. I actually kind of threw a bit of a tantrum, and I, and I chewed out this employee in front of other people, um, insulted them, and then I took the bad copies that came out wrong, and I slammed them down in the trash, and I grabbed the good copies of Bible verses, and <laughs> And took them with me on my way. I thought, well, great, now that's over with. I'm going to get some space to pray and clear my head. And I'm walking down the street, and I want to ask God to now help me and bless me and, and prepare my talk and that sort of thing. And I kid you not, there was a moment where I was walking down Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, and I literally was stopped dead in my tracks. I could not take another step. And I didn't hear an audible voice but as clear as God has ever impressed anything in my heart and communicated to me, he said, essentially, what do you think you're doing? You think you can just now walk out of there and start praying to me and asking for me to bless you and to help you and, and give you comfort after you acted in the most ungodly way and, and did what you did back there in front of other people? You think you can do that? No, you turn around, go back into that store, apologize before you think about doing anything else. And so, I did. <laughs> I had no choice, really. And I went back to the store. I apologized. It was pretty humiliating. You know, they saw what was on the pages that I was trying to print. And, and that was what I did before I did anything else. Now, I realized, wow, this was like, this was God now that I was dealing with. I mean, it's amazing, wonderful, as cool as it is that I can walk down Commonwealth Avenue and talk to him and even think that I can do that because I can, it's not to be taken lightly or flippantly because this is actually a mighty God that I was talking to, the same one who's so accessible and approachable that I can talk to him while I'm walking down the street and expect a response is the same one who has the authority, the power to command me to stop, to make me stop, to tell me to stop doing this, to do this instead, and to demand change and instant obedience. He's that too. He is mighty God. He has that kind of authority and power. We need to remember that. 
We need to remember that. The, the disciples got a, a glimpse of just how much power and authority he really had in that moment where he stilled the storm. They kind of saw firsthand. First of all, they, they came up against a storm that was greater than them. Kind of a simple math equation here we'll have, we'll have for you. The storm was greater than the disciples. Much greater, in fact. So much so that they felt completely powerless in the face of it. This storm had the power to crush and take their lives away. The storm was greater than them. And then Jesus shows them that actually he is greater than the storm. So the storm is greater than the disciples. Jesus is greater than the storm. On the one hand, it's tremendously comforting because their lives are spared, they're safe, they're not going to die, they're not going to drown. But now they're left with, whoa, okay, well, if this storm had the power to crush us, and Jesus had the power to crush the storm, then wow, we're in, the, we're in the boat with someone who has the power and authority to crush us, I mean, to rule us, to direct us, to command us. He has complete power and authority over us. He's that much greater than we are. If the storm is that much greater than we are, Jesus is that much greater than the storm, how much greater is Jesus than these disciples? Infinitely, uncalculably greater than they are. They get a glimpse of it. Every now and then in the New Testament, they walk so closely with him. They're his friends. But every now and then they get a glimpse of just how powerful he is. And sometimes they're in awe. Sometimes they're terrified. Sometimes they fall on their faces before him. Later on in the New Testament, a couple other people get a glimpse of Jesus now as he is ruling in heaven. They get a, they get a picture of what he, what he really looks like right now. One of them was a guy named Saul who became the Apostle Paul later on. At the time, he was persecuting the church of Jesus. He was an enemy of Jesus. And, but he got a glimpse of revelation. He saw Jesus just the way he is. And what happened? He got knocked down off of his horse and stricken blind. There's a great line in the movie Kung Fu Panda that I think summarizes what happened to Saul in that moment. It says, his enemies would go blind from overexposure to pure awesomeness. <laughs> That's really what happened to Saul in that moment. He went blind from overexposure to pure awesomeness. And man, if we really saw Jesus fully, that could happen to us. Pure awesomeness that's overwhelming. The beginning of the book of Revelation, the writer John got a, a glimpse, a revelation of Jesus as he is now ruling as a king, and he fell down as if dead. You know, that's, a, that's actually a proper response to Jesus. Falling down in awe and wonder at his feet. It's also a proper response to draw near to him. He invites us to do that. It's a proper response to, to speak to him, to bring our burdens, to come as we are. That's who he is too. But man, it is also every bit as appropriate to just fall down in complete awe and humility and wonder because he is mighty God. The disciples got a glimpse of this. They saw him powerful over the things that were powerful, powerful over them. Some takeaways for us, then, as we think about that, the implications. One, think about how much greater Jesus is than we are. He is so much greater than we are. This is a tremendously humbling thing as we come before a mighty God, infinitely greater than we are. As, however great we think we might be, and whatever reins of power and authority we might be able to exercise in this world, he is infinitely superior to us. 
And he has the authority to command us, to tell us what to do and not do. He is greater, and we must answer to him. He has authority to rule over our lives. He is that much greater than we are. It's an awesome thing. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he, uh, children's book he wrote, but filled with meaning, there's the character Aslan, the lion. It's a Christ figure. And there's a famous scene where children are going to meet Aslan. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That is Jesus. He is the king. And is he safe? Hmm? Not really, but he is good. That's so hard to reconcile in our minds. Complete, all-powerful authority and complete goodness. It's very hard to understand because we don't see any examples of that in flesh and blood, but we see it in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the Bible, it doesn't give us a formula or a calculation to help us put together all-powerful authority and rule and complete goodness. It doesn't help us do that mathematically. You can't, but it gives us Jesus Christ. We look at him, and we see in him, in his person, perfect rule, a king, all-powerful and almighty, and yet perfectly good. He is all of that. He is all-powerful. He has all authority, but he is all good. And his rule is good. And, you know, it's good that he is a king, and it's good that he has authority and power. It's a good thing. It's a tremendous comfort. As the disciples saw him calm the sea, they realized, oh, he is more powerful than the things that we are powerless over. He has authority to crush the things that have the authority to crush us. He can destroy the things that can destroy us. It's a good thing. He has authority over the things that have authority over us. Just like the villagers in El Salvador who saw El Infierno, they realized, you know, this is great. There's someone with a greater authority who can call to account the people who wield power over us in ways we can't stop. His rule is a good thing. It's good news that he's a king. Because really, we need a savior who will not only hold our hand in the face of unjust suffering, but who will one day break the arm of the oppressor once and for all. And Jesus is both. We need a savior who will not only walk with us through the struggles of life, encourage us along the way, but who will one day put an end to the struggle once and for all and recreate us new and struggle-free. And Jesus is both. And we need a Savior who will not only uh, comfort us, counsel us in the face of confusion and pain, unanswered questions beyond our comprehension, but who actually comprehends the stuff and will one day make sense out of it all. And Jesus is both. And we need a Savior who will not only weep with us at the graveside, which he will, and who will tenderly care for the sick and the dying, but a Savior who will also one day eradicate death once and for all, destroy its power, and make it gone. And Jesus is both. He is mighty God. So what is greater than you? 
A lot of things. I don't know what comes to mind, but what, what does? What is greater than you? The questions you can't answer, the situations you can't change, the diseases over which our, our, our best science has had nothing to say still, the struggles, the hurt, the things we can't change, the things beyond our ability to understand or do anything about, the things that are greater than we are. Jesus is greater than these things. Now, Advent reminds us, though, that we're still waiting to see that in many ways. Maybe some of us have seen Jesus demonstrate his power over a thing, a situation, an issue that was powerful in our lives. We get glimpses of that, but ultimately, we are still a people waiting for him to reveal the full and true nature of his authority and his power over all these things, over sin, over death, over evil, over injustice, over unanswerable questions and suffering. We're still waiting. Advent reminds us to hold on, to keep waiting, to believe that in fact Jesus is greater and will exercise authority over the things that destroy us and our world. And to believe with faith, with hope, that he is greater than the things that are greater than we are. And he will come. And it's the cry of the people who know and love Jesus to say, come, Lord, and exercise your rule in this world. Come and make things right. Come and show your power. Show your might. But before you start crying out for that, because I'm sure there's a lot of things out there you would like him to make right, realize that it's also an invitation to make us right. When we say, come, Lord, in your power and your might, Part of what he needs to bring under his rule and authority is us and our own lives. Are you ready for that? Thankfully, though, we remember at Advent the first time that Jesus came, his, his method of invitation for us into that life, into a life under his authority, a life with him, a life under his rule. He came and exercised his power so gently, so humbly among us. He didn't come with swords and cannons and trumpets and, and lots of punishment. He came in the most humble and vulnerable way. He had the most humble birth possible. Some poor parents on the run who ended up being refugees in a foreign land. And he was every bit a baby. He came to us that way. And then he died the most humble death you can die as he was put to death on a cross in a public way, power, in a most kind of powerless position. It's important to know, though, that that was mighty God who was on the cross dying, that his death on the cross was not just a tragic end to a, a, a life of a really good guy who was nice and tried to do nice things and teach us to be kind to one another, but then ultimately the world got the best of him and he was tragically put to death. Oh, Jesus on the cross was mighty God, the one with all power and authority in this world, suffering willingly at the hands of unjust and wicked powers and authorities on our behalf. He was the one with the power, the ability to crush us, being willingly crushed on our behalf. The one with the rightful right to judge us, to punish sin, to punish wickedness, bearing the punishment upon himself so that we don't have to and so that he can just 
call to us to come to him as we are freely, to come under his rule, to come under his reign. And he invites us to do that now. If you've not done that or if there are aspects of your life that you just don't want to submit to the leadership of Jesus, now's the time. He invites you to do it so gently, to get a taste that his rule and his way, having his way in your life is a good thing and a beautiful thing and a gracious thing. Submit to him now as he makes himself available to you. Because one day, really, everything will submit to his good and beautiful reign and rule and authority. And so if you are someone who is longing for that, Advent reminds you, keep crying out for it. Keep holding on to hope. You know, those El Salvadorian villagers were not going to get their loved ones back because they heard the gospel but they, they were invited to hope, to believe that someday, in some miraculous way beyond their power and control, that things would be made right. And man, there are some things I know we just don't get, we just don't understand, and we just can't fix, but we're invited to continue to believe and to see with the eyes of faith. There is one greater who will make it right, and he is Jesus, the mighty God. Let's pray to him now.